Would you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 13? Deuteronomy chapter 13. It's on page 185 in the Pew Bible. I invite uh, kindergarten and first graders who'd like to go to Children's Church to be dismissed to Children's Church in the foyer in the back of the sanctuary. Deuteronomy chapter 13, page 185. We are continuing our Sunday by Sunday study through Deuteronomy, this really foundational Old Testament book. Deuteronomy 13. And let me read chapter 13. And you can follow along in your Bible. Deuteronomy 13, verse 1. Moses said, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder, and if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, Let us follow other gods gods you have not known, and let us worship them. You must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love Him with all your heart and with all your soul. It is the Lord your God you must follow. In Him you must revere. Keep His commands and obey Him. Serve Him and hold fast to Him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he preached rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. He has tried to turn you from the way the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let us go and worship other gods, Gods that neither you nor your fathers have known. Gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far from one end of the land to the other. Do not yield to him or listen to him. Show him no pity. Do not spare him or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. Your hand must be the first in putting him to death. And then the hands of all the people. Stone him to death because he tried to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When all Israel, then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that wicked men have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, Let us go and worship other gods, gods you have not known, then you must inquire, probe, and investigate it thoroughly. And if it is true, and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done among you, you must certainly put to the sword all who live in that town, destroy it completely, both its people and its livestock. Gather all the plunder of the town into the middle of the public square and completely burn the town and all its plunder as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It is to remain a ruin forever, never to be rebuilt None of those condemned things shall be found in your hands so that the Lord will turn from His fierce anger. He will show you mercy and have compassion on you and increase your numbers as He promised on oath to your forefathers because you obey the Lord your God, keeping all His commands that I'm giving you today and doing what is right in His eyes. I am so thankful 
for the religious freedoms that we enjoy in this country. Uh, I am so thankful for the First Amendment to the United States Constitution that says we have freedom to assemble, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, that Congress shall not uh, impose any religion upon us. I mean, what a blessing. I'm so thankful that we can gather here in this place and sing the name of Jesus, you know, sing it as loud as we want, and we can study His Bible. And I'm so thankful. I'm thankful that we can go out of this place and I can go talk to one of my neighbors who doesn't worship Jesus, and I can, I can try to persuade and convince my neighbor to come to faith in Jesus. And, and I'm thankful that my neighbor can do the same to me. I'm thankful that that's the place we live in. My uh, heart is heavy when I hear news reports or I see on the Internet or get a little forwarded email from somebody about other parts of the world where other human beings made in God's image, do not have that same freedom. When, whether it's an Islamic nation where uh, it's a, a theocracy and there are blasphemy laws. And if you, you know, diss the Quran or you diss Muhammad, you can find yourself in deep water very fast. And I'm grieved to hear that. I, I'm grieved about you know, totalitarian governments like North Korea where, where the state is God, essentially. And if you do not honor the state, you can find yourself in a very bad situation. And and I wish those people enjoyed the same freedoms of religion that, that we enjoy here in this country. And so, in a flurry of freedom of religion, I open my Bible. I turn to Deuteronomy 13 to preach freely from this book. And what do I find? Wow. Moses tells the Israelites, if another Israelite converts to Canaanite religion or any other religion and tries to proselytize, evangelize others to convert with him, you must put him to death. I go, wow. It's a blasphemy law. It's, it's, a, you know, it's an anti-proselytization law. I know, what, what am I supposed to do with this text? How do we handle this? Some of us just say, well, you know, that's the Old Testament for you. That's why I don't read the Old Testament. Um, you know, it's... You know, those people, they lived in a different time, a different era. It was more brutish. It was more nasty back then. I mean, they didn't have, you know, 4G and things like we have. And so, of course, they weren't technologically advanced. And, and if they were living in our day, they would see that was not how to behave. Uh, so I, I just kind of skipped that and I stick with the Gospels and with Jesus. Uh, for some people, uh, not many, but for some, the pendulum swings to the other extreme and they say, maybe we should have this in our country. This is a Christian nation, you know, whatever, whatever that means exactly. And, uh, and, and we need to, to enforce the worship of the true God. Maybe that's the way we handle Deuteronomy 13. Or probably like a lot of us, we just try not to think about such things, um, not to think too deeply. I want to wrestle with this text this morning because it's right here in front of us. It's in God's Word. And I want to do two things. This is kind of the strategy I'm going to employ. I want to first just dwell a little bit thinking about the overall context of Deuteronomy 13. It's so important anytime you read the Bible, anytime you read anything, to ask yourself what does it mean in its original context and background. It's always tempting to, to try to interpret something in light of our personal experience and I think whenever you, you encounter a new idea or something, you need to put your personal experience on hold and try to understand something in its original setting. So I, I want to kind of take a big picture approach first and say, what does this text mean? 
How was it originally working? You know, try to make sense of it that way. And then in light of that, the second thing I want to do then is just we'll walk through this text and we'll look at these three examples. The prophet who leads you astray. Verse 6, the family member who tries to lead you to worship other gods. And then verse 12 and following, the, the town in Israel that has uh, gone off the rails, so to speak, and started to worship the other gods as a whole town. And, and see how these, this general understanding can affect these specific situations and see if it has anything to say to us today. How do we deal with this kind of text? So first of all, let's look, step back and look at the overall historical and theological context of Deuteronomy 13. It's so important to remember whenever you study the Old Testament and Old Testament law to always remember that the people of Israel in the Old Testament lived in a very unique situation that had never existed at any time in all human history before them, and since the ending of the Old Covenant, has never existed again in all of human history since then. It was a very unique situation in which God himself established via a covenant an actual nation on earth. You know, God has a people. He's always had a people. But he hasn't always had a nation in the sense of a geopolitical nation like our country is a nation or Canada is a nation or Kenya is a nation this was the time in history when he actually set up a nation and he didn't just kind of it wasn't like some people got together and said you know well let's worship God let's make let's have a a nation that worships God God himself invented the nation he rescued the people supernaturally out of Egypt things like miracles and plagues and crossing the Red Sea God himself met them on Mount Sinai gave him his Ten Commandments. He set up the legal framework of the nation. God himself supernaturally brought them to the land of Canaan and gave it to them and said, this is the land. And this is the northern boundary. Here's the southern boundary. Here's the, the western boundary. Here's the eastern boundary. Here's your land. It's not here. It's not there. It's right here. And God himself was going to live among them and be a holy God among a holy people in a holy land. And so it was a very unique kind of situation. And it was in that kind of context that God said, because I'm a holy God who saved you by my holy power and put you in this land with my laws, you need to stay faithful to me. It was a unique sort of situation. Um, That's why when you bring in, you know, kind of modern states and examples of freedom of religion today, it's kind of an anachronistic sort of comparison because nothing like this has ever existed in the world except at that time when God did this, this great act. So, you know, a better way to think about it, maybe a a different analogy to help understand that the intensity behind this chapter would be uh, kind of an analogy. Imagine if, you know, let's pretend a husband uh, is working and he, for whatever reason, gets off work early that day. And he's like, you know what, I'm going to go home and surprise my wife. We're going to go out to lunch. And so he zips home and walks in the door and says, honey, I'm home, surprise. And lo and behold, he finds that uh, another guy, whether it's a neighbor or a friend or a family friend or something, is in the house He's come over unannounced, and he's trying to seduce the wife into an affair. He's trying to use pressure and sweet talk and tactics to seduce this woman. And imagine the husband walks in the door and catches this other man trying to seduce his wife. What's that like at that moment? (laughs) It's a very bad situation. The best outcome is they're not friends anymore. That's the best outcome. You know, the worst outcome is, is homicide. I mean, that could be a very, a very violent, a very bad, awful, call the police kind of moment. And, and this is essentially what God is saying. He's like, um, Israel is my wife. 
I rescued her. I love Israel. And the land of Canaan is my house. And you don't come in my house where I live and, and try to seduce my wife to worship other gods that they've never known who didn't rescue them from Egypt, who didn't give them the Ten Commandments, who didn't give them the promised land. And, and so the, the imagery here is, is very different. It's, it's the imagery of a marriage. It's a covenant between God and his people in a very unique, nationalized kind of way. And in light of that, you know, God says, if anyone's going to come in here and, and mess with my, my Israel, they're going to die because you you're committing an, an awful crime against God. Well, there it is then, I guess. We, maybe we can just maybe I can just be done with this sermon because, you know, okay, well, that was that and that was then. And, you know, it doesn't really apply to us because we don't live in Israel. We don't live in a, a, a God-created theocracy. We live in different sort of modern Western nations. And so really this text doesn't apply and we can just sort of say that's it and be done and say amen and I can preach the sor- shortest sermon of my life. Um, well, I, I can't preach that short. And there's more to say because the thing is, uh, God is still God. Even if we don't live in Israel, God is still worthy of our worship. He's worthy of all our worship. God, Jesus Christ is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and the world owes him worship. You know, every Christian owes Jesus worship. Every Muslim owes Jesus worship. Every Buddhist owes Jesus worship. Every flaked out, you know, person who doesn't care about anything, who doesn't believe anything, owes Jesus worship. He is the king. And so we all owe him that worship. And even if we don't live in a state or, or an organized society where God has authorized the death penalty for people who don't worship Jesus, the fact is we still owe him worship. And there's coming a day when we will be held account for how we respond to the Lord, regardless of what culture we live in. Someday we all must stand before the King of Kings and say, what did you do with the gospel? What did you do with my son? What did you do with this Jesus that we read about in, in uh, Mark who with a cloud descended on him on the Mount of Transfiguration and the voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And we'll have to answer, did we listen to him or not? And so God is, uh, is still our God, and uh, we, we still owe him worship. Even though we, we don't live in a nation state, even though we are a pilgrim people on this earth. And so in some ways this text doesn't apply exactly. God's people today are, are a pilgrim nation. We are strangers. We are aliens. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says that we're looking forward to the city that's yet to come, who's you know, builder and architect is God himself. And so we live as strangers in this world. We live as pilgrims. And therefore the church is not in any way authorized to take up the sword to enforce its beliefs. Any time in history, the church, I use the word loosely, has taken up the sword in the name of Jesus, the church has completely left Jesus because that wasn't his way on earth. And yet in spite of that, there's still a day coming when Christ will return as the white rider on, on the white horse with the sword, you know, to judge the world. And he will come on that day in that way. And so we're still accountable for not worshiping God. It's just that it's not enforced the same way now, if that makes sense. And so, so there's your picture, you know. It's, it's that, that Israel was in a unique situation that in one sense doesn't apply, but in another sense it does apply because God is still worthy. He is holy. I, I think one of the reasons Deuteronomy 13 doesn't make sense to us 
frankly, is because we don't treasure the glory of God. We don't see God and His glory and His name as the most precious and sacred thing in all the universe. And so it says, you know, worship other gods. We're like, you know, whatever. Different strokes are different folks. And we don't say, wait a minute. Not worshiping the true God? That This is the worst evil that could ever be committed to not worship God, to love Him with all your heart. You know, if verse 2, you know, Sarah says in verse 2, let us follow other gods. If you took that word out of the mouth of the prophet and you put in the phrase, let us aid and abet the enemy so that terrorist cells are able to strike in our country. And if someone says that, kill them. We'd be like, oh, oh, okay. You know, yeah, I don't, I don't want people aiding and abetting terrorists in our country. Yeah, it's harsh penalties for that. Or if verse 2 said that the prophet entices the people by saying, let us uh, uh, kidnap people and sell them into slavery and promote human trafficking. We would say, ugh, yeah, no way. You know, that's, that's bad. If, if it said, let us you know, abuse children, we'd go, evil. And we would be right. Those are evil, horrific, awful things. And the reason they're awful is because, you know, our country is a gift and we should, you know, be thankful for it. And it's awful because human beings are made in God's image and nobody should be in slavery to another. And it's awful because children are a precious gift from God. And abuse isn't great evil against God. But the thing we don't see that I don't see is that, you know what, God is even more precious than all of those things. That, that everything on earth that is good, pure, wonderful, everything on earth, earth worth defending and protecting is but a dim reflection of the glory of Jesus Christ and His infinite worth and value. And so ultimately, I, I, I struggle with this text in part because I don't see the glory of God as clearly as I should. And I don't see what a, a precious treasure the Lord Jesus Christ is above all treasures and that all the wonderful things on earth are but a reflection of Him. So Israel was in a unique situation. That's why the church isn't called to take a sword and you know, kill people who don't believe in Jesus today. And yet, God is still God. He's still worthy of worship. We're still accountable for how we respond to the Gospel. Now, take those two kind of ideas. Hold them in tension. Don't throw one out of the other. And in light of that, let's go back in now to Deuteronomy 13. And let me just walk us through this passage and look at these three examples. A, uh, um, you know, a prophet, a loved one, and then a city that turns away from the Lord. And see if we can kind of pull us all together. First of all, you have the prophet. Chapter 13, verse 1. If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams, the Hebrew phrase is a dreamer of dreams, appears among you and announces to you a miraculous sign or wonder. And if the sign or wonder of which he has spoken takes place, and he says, let us follow other gods and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. In fact, verse 5, that prophet or dreamer must be put to death. So here you have this weird situation of a prophet arising. You know, hey, I speak for God. God has a message. And you go, okay, what's the message? And, uh, and the prophet says there's going to be a miracle. And if the miracle takes place or the, the sign or wonder takes place, and you go, wow, that guy predicted it and it came true. And then he says, let's worship other gods. Then Moses says, forget about it. <laughs> Don't listen. Don't listen to that person. Because ultimately, God's word must trump these kinds of experiences. You know, I was just trying to imagine, like, imagine if you had a f- coffee with a friend and your friend said to you, 
I got to tell you, I had a weird dream about you last night. Instantly you would pick up, right? Because you'd be like, oh, anytime, if you ever, someone has ever told you they dreamed about you, it's always like, oh, really? What did you dream about me? It's just kind of interesting. You know, it's like, well, maybe I don't want to know, but, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, but w- what is it? And, and imagine the person said, I had this weird dream where you were driving down the road and you got into a car wreck and you somehow walked out of the car wreck alive and unscathed. And then I came and visited you with an important message from God. And then I woke up from my dream. You're like, oh, that's weird. Weird, okay, whatever, wonder what that means. And then imagine a week later, you're actually driving down the road. You actually get into a car wreck. You flip the car over. The the ambulances come. They pull you out. And you're you're shaken. You're rattled. You got a few scrapes, but you're really okay. And And the EMTs are going... You should not be walking out of this car wreck. I mean, maybe you've had weird experiences like that in your life where just weird things happen. And and then you're sitting in the hospital sort of shaken, thinking, I can't believe it, that actually came true. And that person comes and visits you in the hospital. They're like, I can't believe it, the dream actually came true. And and you're both going, what what do you think it means? And and your friend who had the dream says, you know know what I think it means? I think it means that that you're, you're getting in touch with the divine within you. And, you know, I've gotten in touch with the divine within me. And as soon as I have, I, I've started having these mystical experiences. And maybe you need to realize that you're, you're divine as well. And, and you're tapping into that inner energy that you have. You know, at that point, you need to say, get thee behind me, Satan. <laughs> this is not of God. There's more powers in the world than just the Lord. This is not of the Lord. In fact, that's what he says. He says, verse 4. Uh, Verse 3, the Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul by sending a prophet or an experience or some kind of crazy thing along that seems supernatural. But I'll tell you what, if if the prophet doesn't call us to worship the true God, it doesn't matter how wonderful or amazing or astounding the word is. We need to stick to the true God. And God says, I'm just testing you to see if you really love me. We have the same issue as we come into the church age. There are still prophets and teachers. There's all kinds of amazing mystical things that happen. People have all kinds of experiences. But, but if, if it doesn't point us to Christ, it's pointing us in the one other direction that we don't want to go. Um, Jesus warned us. He said false Christs and false prophets will arise. And they will do miraculous signs to even deceive the elect if that were possible. Jesus warned us. Uh, Peter talks about false teachers. Paul warns us against false teachers and false prophets. Check out this text. I want to show you this. Put a bookmark here in Deuteronomy 13. I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We'll come back to Deuteronomy 13. That's on page 1151. Galatians chapter 1, page 1151. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 1, verse 6. He says to these Galatians, there are a bunch of people who lived in kind of northern central Turkey, uh, an area called Galatia. Paul says to them, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So these Galatians were Gentile Christians who'd been converted. They'd come to faith in Jesus. They'd met Jesus. 
And, and apparently some people had come to Galatia, and we find out later in, in the book of Galatians that they were trying to tell these new Christians, hey, look, that's great you found Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised. You also need to keep the kosher food laws. You also need to uh, obey the Sabbath. I mean, it's in the Old Testament. I mean, come on, you need to do these things. And, and so they were perverting the gospel because the gospel, instead of just being faith in Christ, was becoming faith in Christ plus X, Y, and Z. And so Paul says, look, you guys are leaving the gospel. You're diverting from, the, from this faith. And then look what Paul says, verse 8. This is where it gets really heavy. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than the one you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Eternally condemned is actually worse than stoned to death. If you had to pick, pick stoned to death and live forever with the Lord. But don't pick eternally condemned. Now that's the worst thing that could happen to, con- to fall forever underneath God's judgment. And Paul says, if an angel comes and preaches a different gospel, if I come and preach a different gospel, you know, just because someone was a faithful teacher in the past doesn't mean they can't get off track in the present. So you have to keep listening and keep saying, well, wait a minute, is that, how, you said that before, but now it's really changing to something else. Well, I trusted them in the past. I guess I'll just trust them in the future. You, you need to, to really listen. So it doesn't matter who it is. I, I don't care who the person is. I don't care you know, what, what, how good of a speaker they are, what gifted orator they are. It doesn't matter how big their church or churches are. It doesn't matter if they have a great TV ministry that's beamed out all over the world and thousands watch them and radio programs listened all over the country. It doesn't matter if they've written lots of books and spoken at lots of conferences. I don't care if they, if they have prophetic words and claims of, of, of speaking for God. It doesn't matter if they have PhDs in Hebrew and Ugaritic and theology and all kinds of things. If they're teaching a different gospel, you need to just flee, you know? Don't be intimidated because you don't have all those things. Look, you have everything you need. You have the Bible. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And number three, you have a brain. Use it. Use it. And if something doesn't sound right, even if you can't quite figure it out, it just didn't sit and right with you, like, trust that instinct. And, and dig in. Don't, don't let someone bowl you over just because they claim to be a prophet. Or claim to be this or claim to be that. We, we need to be people who know the Lord ourselves and know His Word. And you don't have to have a theological degree to know the Lord and to know the Lord Jesus. So stay, stay faithful to His Word. And even in the New Testament age, we need to beware of those who would lead us astray. And God will deal with them. That's why, too, not many of you should want to be teachers of the Word. Because it's a heavy responsibility. Go back to Galatians or Deuteronomy 13 now. Okay, so there's the situation of the prophet who leads astray. And we saw that back then that involved the death penalty. But even today, even though we don't have the sword in our hand, we still must not listen to those who would turn us away from the gospel. And then number two, what about this one? The, the real tough one, I think. It's the one that I wrestled with. Chapter 13, verse 6 of Deuteronomy. The, the close loved one who tries to lead you astray. Verse 6, if your very own brother your son or your daughter, or the wife you love, Hebrew phrases, the wife of your bosom, 
such an intimate image of embracing someone to your bosom, the wife of your bosom, or your closest friend, the Hebrew phrase is uh, the friend of your own soul. Like the, you know, that one friend you have in life who just, they know you like you know yourself. You've been like this since kindergarten. That friend, if they should try to lead you away secretly. So the prophet does it publicly, the friend does it secretly, and entice you saying, let us go and worship other gods. Verse 8, do not yield to him, do not listen to him, show him no pity, do not spare or shield him. You must certainly put him to death. Your hand must be the first in putting him to death, and then the hands of all the people. So, if that happens, Moses is saying, take them out, pick up a stone, and if it's your kid, you throw the first stone. Wow. If it's your spouse, you throw the first stone. This is heavy. It's really hard. You know? And yet, you understand the danger because it's our family members who are closest to us. It's our family members who are most influential. The most influential person in my life, the person who can get me to do anything more than anyone else, is my wife. She, I, you know, I listen to her. I trust her. I bounce things off her. When I'm confused and I've had those times in my life where I just can't think straight, I dump things on her. And she says, okay, you need to do this. And I don't even believe it, but I just do it because I trust her. (laughs) She's usually right. And I I just go with her. And so in some ways, she's my greatest support. In other ways, she's the biggest danger in my life. In the sense that if she were to go off course or I were to go off course, we could have a very bad influence on each other if we weren't strong in our own faith. And so it's just the the closer you are to someone, the, the more... potential there is there for being led astray because we love people and you know it's our family it's your kids it's your best friend you know your bff your it's your spouse it's whatever it is it's really hard and moses says you you can't let that happen fortunately though we are new testament christians and we follow jesus and jesus would never say anything like this right turn to matthew 10 turn to matthew chapter 10 Page 965, there's this kind of common perception of Jesus that he was sort of like a first century hippie. Peace, man. Let's get together and try to love one another right now. We have this image of Jesus as just the kind of the cosmic lamb hugger. And uh, look what he says here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Somehow the the hippie Jesus goes away and we find another Jesus here. Page 965, Matthew 10, 34. Jesus says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Wow. Jesus said, I've come to, to bring division, not unity. I've come to bring war, not peace. Well, in what sense? What's he talking about? Well, we get a further explanation. Verse 35. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I guess that's not too hard. Uh, <laughs> a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Oh, I see. So the sword in the sense that, that because of Jesus somehow people will be at odds with each other. Well, in what way? Explain it further. Okay, verse 37. Anyone who loves his mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Okay, so it's in the sense that when we come to Jesus, he becomes our highest loyalty. And that loyalty is even more than our family. And if push comes to shove, we stand with Christ. In that sense, there's a division. In that sense, there's a sword. Not that we actually persecute our family members, but but that Christ demands our utmost loyalty. And he still does today, even though we don't live in, in that time and in that context. And I know some of you have experienced that kind of division. Some of you have experienced those choices. Some of us were much more close to our family members before we knew Jesus. And then we came to know Jesus and things changed. And we still love our family. We love them just as much as we ever did. But there's this whole faith in Christ thing that's right in the middle of it. From their perspective, we changed. Like, you used to be one of us. You know, you're, you're fifth generation, you know, brain tree. And we're all still here. We're still doing the same thing. You're the one who's gone off and drunk the Kool-Aid and gotten involved in your weird whatever cult or church or whatever it is. You used to spend more time with us. Now you're at church on Sunday mornings. You used to do this and that, and now you're, you're over there, and we don't understand you. We feel like you've left us, that you've betrayed us. And so there's this weird thing. And, and so you try to bridge the gap. You try to love your family. You, there's all these weird dynamics that take place at Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving and, you know, Fourth of July. You try to work it out. Some families handle it better. Other families handle it worse. I was talking to our youth pastor, uh, Chris Hemrick, a couple weeks ago, and he was telling me that recently he was down um, visiting his one of his family members who was having a birthday, and lots of extended family were there. And, you know, Chris is the one guy in the family who's a born-again Christian, and all the rest of them aren't. They, they, they wouldn't claim to really be anything. And, of course, Chris is not only that. He's also a pastor, so they, they cannot figure him out at all. And um, those of us who love and know him sometimes can't figure him out. But uh, that, that, that's beside the point. <laughs> but uh, just kidding. Um, I'm sure they'd say the same about me. But uh, 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 Chris, you know, was there with his family, and, and they were, you know, razzing him about being a pastor and they kept quoting movies where, where pastors and priests are really doofusy kind of guys and they're like oh you're like that and just mocking him and teasing him and it's like i'm just trying to be at a birthday party with my family you know can i just be here with my family and and the harassment that, that he received some of us have that and we experience it and there's a temptation to capitulate in order to keep the family peace and yet There's a danger in that because if we do that, then we're not worthy of Christ. And besides, here's the deal. Once you've met Jesus, you can't go back. That's the thing. It's not that I'm trying to ruin the family. This is the other side of it. So the family says, you've left us. Why'd you do this? But the other perspective is, you don't understand. I've met Christ. I can't go back. There's no way I could ever turn back. Once you've met Him, once you have met the Savior, once He's forgiven your sins, once He's, he's come into your life, it's like, I could never go back. How could a, a person who's been blind their whole life and miraculously received their sight choose to gouge their eyes out? I could never do that. I've I got to keep going forward. And I hope my family will love me and support me in this path, and I hope they'll join me. But I can't go back. I can't go back. Because Christ is all in all. So don't go back. Stay faithful to the Lord, even if it means tension. Love your family. Reach out to them. But ultimately, there's, there's tension. And then finally, just the last one really quickly here, going back to Deuteronomy 13. 
Verse 12. If you hear it said about one of the towns the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that wicked men have arisen among you and have led the people of their town astray, saying, let us go worship other gods, then investigate it, check it out. If it's true, verse 15, you must certainly put to the sword all those who live in that town. Destroy it completely, both its people and all its livestock. Gather all the plunder in the middle of the town and burn it down. Wow, that's huge. Let me ask you this, though. Does that sound familiar within the context of the Old Testament? Do you remember other texts like that? Yeah, that's what Israel was supposed to do to the Canaanites. That's what Israel was supposed to do when they took the city of Jericho, is destroy it and wipe it out completely. So what God is basically saying is, if my people within Israel, within the covenant, turn away from me and start acting like Canaanites, guess what? They're going to be treated like Canaanites. If you act like an unbeliever, I will treat you like an unbeliever. If you turn against me, then I will treat you like the Canaanites who were here before you that that I destroyed completely. And in the New Testament, even though in the church we don't bear the sword, even though we live in this pilgrimage time, still within the church there is a sense in which we must guard the purity and the witness of the church. Uh, One of the things that Jesus and the apostles talked about was this idea of church discipline. I don't know if you've heard of this concept of church discipline. Jesus taught us to do this. He said in the church, if there's a brother or sister who's really falling into sin in some kind of flagrant way that's obvious that you can tell, you're supposed to go to that person and say, hey, I love you, but, you know, you're, you're going this way. This isn't right. You're not following the Lord. You need to snap out of it. And if the person says to you, eh, leave me alone, well, then Jesus says, go get another friend. And the two of you go together and say, look, we love you, but you're really going off the tracks, and this isn't right. You're not following the Lord. And, and if the person says, eh, Then Jesus says, bring them to the whole church. And if they won't listen to the whole church, Jesus says what? Treat them as a tax collector or a sinner. In other words, treat them as if they are an unbeliever. You must put them out of the church. You must excommunicate them, dismember them from the membership roles, however you want to put it, because the gospel's at stake. You know, what if people in town know that person and the life they're living and they're in your church and a member of your church, what are they going to say? They're going to be like, yeah, a bunch of hypocrites in that place. So it's, it's for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of Christ, for the protection of the church spiritually in that sense, that there are times even in the church where we have to say, look, this city, this person is not living like a believer in such a flagrant, unrepentant way, and so we must treat them as if they're not a believer, which means, as far as we're concerned, not a part of the church. And you pray that they'll repent. You pray that they'll come back to the Lord and follow the Lord. That's a hard thing to do. You know, the thing about church discipline is there's never a good time to do church discipline. It's never convenient. It's always the wrong time. It never works out. But it's always the right time if we're obedient to the Lord. And so we have to have courage to face these things. And so... The Lord is worthy of our worship. Even though we don't live in those days, He still demands our utmost obedience and allegiance. And that may mean turning away from a teacher that you've listened to for years who's suddenly changing his message. That may mean tension with family members that you wish wasn't there but is, but you've got to stay faithful to the Lord. That may mean a hard decision in a church where a church has to take a stand for righteousness in some obvious kind of case. But you know what I think the hardest thing about this passage is? 
the most troubling thing to me, the thing that really bothers me in this passage, it's, it's not ultimately that God told the Israelites to kill certain people. I mean, that's troubling, but I can at least theologically kind of intellectualize that and get my head around it. It's not that families can be divided by faith. I understand that happens. You know the most troubling thing in this passage for me? It's that when I look in my own heart, I see that I am the kind of person who turns away from the Lord. And then I realize this is how God feels about it. I look at my own heart and I'm like, I'm the kind of person who gets off the tracks. I'm the kind of person who worships other gods and who's fickle and and I have infidelity in my heart toward God. I don't stay faithful to Him. And then I see this is how God feels about my infidelity to Him. Wow, that's what's troubling is that God is a jealous God and He hates sin and rebellion. But then that most troubling of all realizations, my own idolatrous heart before a holy God, then leads me to the most wonderful thought, which is the amazement that God Himself would send His own Son to what? Be executed. What do you do with idolaters in Israel? You execute them. Jesus came to be executed for me. He... he, literally took my place in the punishment I deserve. Even though Jesus was the one guy who was faithful his whole life, he was the one who never deviated from his ultimate love for God and for his fellow man. And so on the cross, the the ultimate fidelity of Jesus became mine, and my infidelity to God became Christ's, and he was killed in my place. And so now, for the first time in my life, I feel true worship in me, pure worship coming up because I'm so thankful for Christ. It's not a worship I have to kind of be like, oh, wow, God wants me to really worship him and not worship idols. Okay, here I go. I'm going to do some true worship now. You know, I'm going to make myself worship. What makes me worship the Lord is when I realize what he's done for me on the cross. Then I'm like, wow, I love this Savior. I love this Lord. Oh, why would I ever turn from Him? And so the more clearly I see my sin, well, let's take it back a step. The more clearly I see a holy God, my sin, the sacrifice of Jesus, the more I'm caught up in true worship to the true God. It is the Gospel going deeper into my soul that is the antidote to idolatry. Let's pray. Lord, I love You and we praise You today that You have saved us, that You have paid that penalty, that You were executed and paid the the death of an idolater, Lord, to save us. We love You. We pray, Jesus, that we would stand in awe of the Gospel, that we would stand in awe of You and that in light of that, true worship would come as a response. God, I pray that that You would cause our hearts to be more faithful to You. I, I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here who's never really met the true Jesus of the Bible, that you would introduce yourself to them, Lord, that they would meet you, and they would just be drawn to you like everyone was who truly met you, Lord. God, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your only Son to die for us and to rise again. Lord, help us to be more faithful. 
Help us to be courageous. Help us, Lord, if, if it's going to have a price tag associated with it, help us be willing to pay that social price, if necessary, to stay faithful to you, even if it means, therefore, having to say no to other relationships. Lord, make us loyal to the death. In Jesus' name, amen.